26. Some such anecdote when the butler brought him word that a man wished to see him. Tell him I am engaged with my friends, and can see no one, said the gentleman. Pompously, the butler retired, but soon came back to say the man was most urgent in wishing to speak to the gentleman, and said he had been in his regiment at a famous battle, where he owed his life to the officer. Show him in, show him in, said the host, much gratified. This good fellow says I saved his life at X he added, turning to his guests as the old soldier came in how was it? He went on, for I am sure I forget, in the heat of battle one does brave things almost unconsciously. It was like this, your honor, said the soldier, I owed my life to you, for I certainly should never have thought of running away if you had not set me the example. A peep at northern Italy, it is comparatively easy now to run over to Switzerland and through the lovely scenery of the St. Gothard Pass, to the plains of sunny Italy, but this land of light and song is very little known to English boys and girls. Of all the lovely lakes that reflect the deep blue of the summer skies, none is more beautiful than Lake Lugano. Although Como is larger and Maggiore has a charm of its own, the town of Lugano stands at one end of the lake. It is pretty and bright, with many things to interest and amuse but it is in the villages dotted along the south side of the lake that the real life of the people is to be seen. These villages are surrounded by vineyards. The grapes are gathered in October, when the whole scene is very animated and gay. Everyone men, women, children, even the ox wagons of the country is pressed into the service, and the vineyards resound with songs and laughter. From these grapes a red wine is made. It is the ambition of every peasant to own a small vineyard and a boat. On the other side of the lake rises a range of hills covered almost to the water's edge with deep green woods. In some places cliffs rise between wood and water, and in these cliffs are many small natural caves. These have been enlarged and enclosed with doors, so as to form wine vaults, and in them is stored much of the wine made in the district. On Sunday afternoons in summer the lake is alive with boats, each holding a happy family party of father, mother, and children and laden with cakes made from Poland, and other dainties, they are all bound for the caves, where a series of merry picnic parties is soon in progress, the provisions are taken from the boats, the wine vault is opened with a key, for all are kept carefully locked, and then the feast begins, soon the air is filled with song and laughter, the whole afternoon is spent in this way, and only in the cool of the evening do the merry revelers return to their simple homes across the lake, the boats look very pretty, they are rather wide and shallow, and in the middle a white canvas covering is stretched from side to side, supported on bent canes, to make a shelter from the heat of the sun. The boatman in the dress of the country stands at the end, and drives the boat through the water with rapid strokes from his single oar. The streets are narrow and crooked, and the houses are built very irregularly. There is no pavement, and the dust is amazing. The brown-faced, bare-legged children, with large solemn-looking brown eyes, tumble about in it, munching ripe red tomatoes with their hunches of brown bread, in the grass by the roadside funny little green lizards run in and out, hurrying away at your approach as fast as their legs will carry them, it is very strange to see even the smallest cottages fitted with electric light, but this is the case in one village, Maraja, a clever German has set up some works close by, and drives the machinery by power derived from a beautiful waterfall near the village, from Maraja a young Italian went to London some years ago to seek his fortune. He succeeded so well that he soon became rich. Returning to his native village, he built there a beautiful villa, with gardens and lawns sloping down to the lake.
When it was finished he gave a feast to all the villagers. Thousands of fairy lamps and Chinese lanterns were sent for from London to illuminate the gardens, and turn them for the occasion into fairyland. The peasants had never before seen anything like it. They danced, they sang, and ate the good things provided for them. They would willingly have lingered there all night, and it was only when the last lamp flickered and went out that they returned home to dream of what they had enjoyed. At one end of the lake stands Monte Generoso. The top is reached by a mountain railway, which zigzags its way up through the woods. It feels very strange as the engine goes up panning and puffing, turning a sharp corner at every few yards, but the view from the summit is very fine, and the journey down still more exciting than the ascent. At the other end of the lake is a famous china and earthenware manufactory. You can reach it by steamboat, but it is much better fun to go in a small boat where you can lie under the awning and watch the boatman, in his white shirt sleeves and colored velvet waistcoat, steering his boat like the gondoliers of Venice. The china manufactory is old-fashioned, but very interesting. The potter's wheel is still used there, and it is wonderful to see the ease and quickness with which a lump of clay is made into a cup, a saucer, a vase, or any other article you may ask for. After it is taken off the wheel, it is dipped into a liquid glaze then ornamented with some design transferred from colored paper, and finally fired in the furnace. Most people who visit the Italian lakes go on to Milan, a very important, busy town. On the way you pass through large tracts of country covered with maize and rice fields. The maize grows to an enormous height, and the rice is watered artificially by tiny streams, which may be seen trickling through the fields in all directions. Elaine Carruthers, Cruisers in the Clouds, VII. Balloons at the Siege of Paris in 1870, towards the close of the war between France and Germany. In 1870, the German troops lay so closely round the walls and fortifications of Paris that all communication with the outside world was cut off. No lepers could be sent to friends, and no lepers from friends could be received, for, once outside the walls of the town, they would surely fall into the hands of the enemy. But the post office was anxious to continue doing its duty and the government felt bound to find some means for sending out and receiving official dispatches. The only way to accomplish this was by the use of balloons. Paris had always been very busy with balloons, but, when inquiries were made, it was found that there were not more than six in all the city, and these were far too old and worn out to use. Balloons must, therefore, be made, said the authorities, and two gentlemen, named Goddard and Young were requested to begin the work at once, as railway stations were not wanted for trains in Paris at that particular time. The two largest were chosen in which to build balloons, henceforth their trains would journey silently through the sky instead of noisily over the iron roads. Needles and cotton and calico were all carried in large quantities to the Gare du Nord and the Gare d'Orléans as the two stations are called, and in less than four months sixty balloons were built and dispatched. Some people in Paris However, were so anxious to try the experiment that they could not wait for the new balloons, but used an old one, called the Neptune, and Amberdoff, a daring aeronaut, made a flying dash in it out of Paris. Those who witnessed his adventure say that the old Neptune bounded almost straight up into the air, and fell beyond the enemy's camp in much the same manner. It was as though a large cannonball had been fired only very slowly from the streets of Paris. The successful path of the Neptune was soon followed. Embedded, the great statesman, stepped into the car of the Armand Barbes on the morning of October 7th, and, 
after many narrow escapes from the enemy's guns, landed safely among friends. Three days later a pretty gray feathered pigeon settled in Paris, bringing in one of its quills the story of his journey. But among the many wonderful ascents made in that terrible time, none is more interesting than that of M. Jansen, a great astronomer, who went to Algeria to see an eclipse of the Sunday certain learned societies in France, very anxious that the progress of science should not be delayed by this unhappy war, were delighted to find him willing to undertake the dangerous journey. England offered to obtain a safe conduct for him through the Prussian camp, but the astronomer said, Member thank you. I do not wish to be under any obligation to the enemy. So, packing his telescope and other instruments with very great care, he carried them to the Gare d'Orléans on the morning of the 2nd December three weeks before the eclipse would take place, and, settling himself in the car of his white balloon, the vaulted, gave orders for the anchor to be weighed. At that time in the morning it was quite dark, and, ere daylight was an hour old, he and his companion a young sailor had come to earth again by the mouth of the lawyer. They had traveled nearly 300 miles in a little more than three hours. A swifter journey has hardly ever been made. It is disappointing to learn that, after such a daring exploit, M. Jansen reached his destination only to find dense clouds covering the Algerian sky at the moment the eclipse took place. The frequency with which balloons left Paris soon made it necessary to increase the number of aeronauts. For those who departed were, of course, unable to return, as the professional men became fewer, it was found that the best to take their places were sailors, but, that they might first have lessons in the art, a car was suspended from the roof of the factory, and into this the sailor pupil climbed, he soon learned how to cry out, let go all, then, after throwing out the ballast, pulling the valve rope, and dropping the anchor, he was ready with more courage than discretion, to call himself an aeronaut, and into the air he went, with bags of lepers and cages of pigeons, and, on the whole, succeeded very well as a postman in the clouds. The mention of pigeons leads us to another story of ingenuity, though it has not much to do with balloons. After the question of how to dispatch lepers had been solved, the next that arose was, how to receive replies. The balloons that left the city had got nearly all Europe to settle in but it was hopeless to try to steer them back to so small a spot as the city itself. But a carrier pigeon would have no such difficulty in returning. Means must be found, however, to make it possible for each bird to carry many lepers. M. Degron, a clever photographer, discovered this means. He showed how he could photograph a leper and reduce it in size till the writing became unreadable, even under an ordinary magnifying glass. This could be done on films so thin that a roll of 20 of them could be inserted in one quill, each film representing a large number of lepers. Having proved to the authorities the success of his invention, M. Degron departed in a balloon, to explain to the various towns in France how lepers must be sent to Paris. Every day after that the welcome sounds of flapping wings was heard in the beleaguered city. The lepers that they brought were placed between two sheets of glass and enlarged, then, by means of a magic lantern. They were reflected onto a large screen, while post office clerks, sitting at a table opposite, copied them down onto separate sheets, and dispatched them to their different addresses in the city. Nearly 100,000 lepers were sent to Paris in this way during the four months of the siege, and the hostile army outside its walls was powerless to intercept them. John Lee, Willie Sum, Willie laid his pencil down, and put his books away and with a sad and thievish frown he hurried out to play.
But as he ran, the blackbird's song from poplars in the lane, rang out, you know that some was wrong, and should be done again. Yet Willie heeded not the sound, pretended not to hear, till trees, and hills and all around kept singing in his ear, it's no use, Willie, trust us, do, you can't enjoy the fun until the task that's set for you is well and justly done. Then in a sad and sorry state he homeward turned amain, took up his pencil and his slate and worked the sum again. This time the answer wasn't wrong, and as to play he went, his conscience sang an altered song which made his heart content. Generosity. A father of a family wished to settle his property between his three sons. He therefore made three equal parts of his chief possessions and gave one part to each son. There remained over a diamond ring of great value which he reserved for the son who should perform the noblest and most generous action within the space of three months. The sons separated, and at the appointed time presented themselves before him. The eldest son said, Father, during my absence I had in my power all the riches and fortune of a person who entrusted them to me without any security of any kind, he asked me for them, and I returned them to him with the greatest honesty. You have done, my son, replied the father, only what was your duty? and I should die of shame if you were capable of doing otherwise, for honesty is a duty, what you did was just, but not generous, it was now the second son's turn, and he spoke thus, I was on the banks of the lake, when, seeing a child fall in, I threw myself in and with great danger to myself drew him out, I did it in the presence of some countrymen, who will testify to the truth of it, well and good, replied the father, but there is only humanity in that action, At last came the turn of the third son, who spoke thus, I found my mortal enemy, who had strayed during the night, and was sleeping on the edge of a precipice in such a manner that the least false movement on waking would have thrown him over. His life was in my hands, I was careful to wake him with precaution, and drew him out of danger. Ah, my son, exclaimed the father, overjoyed, embracing him, without doubt you deserve the ring, animal makeshifts, true anecdotes. I I. Time without a clock. The stork in the heavens knoweth her appointed times, says the Bible, and the turtle dove, the crane, and the swallow to this day observe the time of their coming. What a wonderful law is theirs. They need not learn it, for it is born in them. Migratory birds know not only the need for their journeys, but the fixed times for them. It has been thought that the rules of their airy road have been handed down from generation to generation, but this is not always true. Nothing is positively known, except that the travelers are in search of food or quiet nesting places, when they move from land to land, as the time draws near for birds of passage to travel, they seem to know it by an inward restlessness, they long to be away they know that delay is dangerous, and, so strong is the longing to be gone, that migratory birds kept back by accident or willful cruelty, often die of the desire to go, the young cuckoo never survives an attempt to detain him. A poor, wild goose, with a lame wing, was seen bravely setting out on foot to do his journey of hundreds of miles over sea and land, when he saw his brethren depart for another clime. One of nature's grandest sights is the yearly flight southwards of wild swans from Norway to the Great Lakes in Turkey. The birds fly at the rate of about 100 miles an hour, in vast flocks, shaped like the leopard the sharp and foremost, as an arrow passes through the air. At the point flies the leader or captain, the strongest and wisest of the band, and ahead of the main army he sends a skirmishing swan to keep a sharp lookout. 
This one's business it is to see if the coast is clear. From time to time he comes rushing back with some warning note. Then there is a great cackling, a pause, and a council. After holding this noisy parliament, the army resumes its course, or changes it, according to the news brought. When the swans reach the lake, they do not swoop down till the captain has made a careful search around, poking among the reeds, flapping over the surface, and even taking a sip of the water, to make sure that nothing has happened to make the lake dangerous for swans since the last time he was there. All being well, he signals to the band, who descend with a rush, and soon cover the water with their graceful forms. Do pigeons carry watches? How do London pigeons, for instance, tell the hour? and turn up punctually at the feeding places, at Guildhall Yard the birds come early in the morning to eat the breakfast provided for them, but they do not stay all day, at Finsbury Circus, Draper's Hall Gardens, and other places in London, there are flocks which are carefully fed at regular hours, and those who have the care of them agree that at feeding time the flocks are always joined by large numbers of guests from without, perhaps the pigeons ask each other out to dine, Mentioning the hours for the meals, the rough idea of time which all living things possess is keenest in domestic animals, the dogs, cats, horses, donkeys, and others, who know certain days in the week and hours in the day without clock or almanac, may be guided by noticing little events which we do not, but which show them the time, or they may even feel the position of the Sunday though it cannot be seen, however this may be, they show a sense which we must admire and may envy. Horses are great observers of time, as many anecdotes show, perhaps none better than this one, a horse belonging to a newsman knew the houses at which his master's journals were delivered, and, when he took them round in the trap, all was stopped at the right doors, but this was not all, there were two people living one at Thorpe, the other at Chertsetty who paid for a weekly paper between them, taking it in turns to read it first, the horse found this out and would stop one week at Thorpe and the next at Chertsey. Alternately, the mule is not behindhand. A Spanish milk seller was taken ill, and, being unable to go the rounds or to spare his wife, they agreed to send the mule, who always carried it, alone. A paper was written, asking the customers to measure their own milk, and place the money in a little can for the purpose. This was fastened to the animal's neck, and off he went. At every house where his master was in the habit of selling milk he stopped and waited, but he did not wait an unreasonable time. If nobody came, he tried to push the door open, or pull the string of the bell, which, in Madrid, is usually rung by a cord hanging down. The simple peasants laughed, and fell into the joke, they scorned to cheat the dumb milkman, and the clever mule took his money home in triumph. It is not the higher animals alone who are timekeepers. Meanwhile tells of a friendly toad living in a garden, who would appear at the family dinner time, and sit upon the stone ledge outside the window to get a share, the hour was changed, for some reason, from noon to three in the afternoon, and, for the first time, the uninvited guest was absent once, but once only, on the second day after the change he was squatting at the new hour ready for his saucer of milk, Edith Carrington, afloat on the daughter bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, Continued from page 243, chapter VII. Three days passed, and Charlie and Ping Wan were still on board the Coper, no boat bound for Grimsby having been met. During that time Charlie and his friend had seen many things which filled them with loathing for the boat on which circumstances had placed them. On the third evening, 
When the Copers boat returned from a trip around the trawlers, Charlie and Ping Wong were surprised to see that the passengers were two men who had been sent away early on the previous evening, because their money was spent. How can they have got money since last night? Charlie said to Ping Wong. They've borrowed from their mates, Ping Wong suggested, but they soon discovered that his explanation was not the right one. As the boat bobbed up and down by the side of the lily, the men took from the bottom of it a fishing net, and handed it up to the skipper, who was leaning over the gunwale. They have stolen that net, Charlie remarked, guessing the truth, and the skipper is going to buy it from them. It's a new one, skipper, one of the thieves exclaimed, as he jumped on board. All right, the receiver of stolen property answered, go down below and enjoy yourselves. The two men descended at once into the saloon, while the skipper, after examining the net, dragged it aft, and removing a hatchway dropped the net into the hold. As he did so Charlie stepped forward and looking down, saw, by the light of the wire-guarded lamp, that the hold was half full of nets, oars, buckets, ropes, cooking utensils, brass fittings, mops, oilies, and other things too numerous to mention, all that is stolen property, I suppose, Charlie said to the skipper, well, it wasn't stolen from you, the skipper answered, so you have no cause to grumble, he closed the hatchway and then turned to Charlie to abuse him more freely. But just as he began a seaman came up and told him that a mission ship had joined the fleet of trawlers. Forgetting all about Charlie, the skipper hurried away to look at the new craft, and found that the news was true. Very bad news he considered it, for he knew that the North Sea fishermen never came aboard a coper if there was a mission ship with the fleet. Tobacco is sold cheaper on a mission ship than on a coper, and naturally the fishermen who have very little money to spend, buy in the cheapest market. Moreover, every man aboard a mission ship is a friend of the fishermen, and there is not a trawler in the North Sea on which it is not possible to find two or three men who have good reasons for blessing mission ships. Hundreds of men have been carried aboard these floating hospitals and nursed back to health. When the mission ship was about half a mile from the lily, Charlie said to the coper skipper, Now is your chance to get rid of Ping Wong and me. Hail that boat and send us aboard her. Hail a craft like that? The skipper answered roughly. I'd sink her with pleasure if I had the chance, but as for hailing her I'd rather die. I'll give you a sovereign to take us aboard her. Wouldn't do it for ten sovereigns. Charlie went back to Ping Wong and told him of the skipper's decision. I'm not surprised, Ping Wong declared. He will sail off as quickly as possible. I fancy, that, indeed, was the coper skipper's intention. He wished to start immediately, and would have done so had it not been for the two thieves who were drinking in the saloon. Now then, said the skipper, coming down to the saloon and addressing the thieves, if you won't leave, I shall have to sail off with you. Right you are, I don't care, one of them declared, and the other added that he would thoroughly enjoy a cruise in a coper. The skipper, however, had no intention of keeping on board two men without money, and was compelled to wait about for their departure. But just as he expected them to go, one man had a heated argument with his companion, which ended in a fight. The skipper, fearing that his saloon might be damaged, tried to stop the fight by seizing hold of the smaller man, who, however, promptly freed himself, and with two quick following blows with his fist knocked the skipper down. The other man had in the meanwhile jumped across the counter and seized a bottle, which he put in his pocket. Come on, Jack. He shouted to the man whom he had been fighting, and hurried up on deck. Jack, 
seeing that the skipper was not likely to interfere with him, followed his shipmate quickly on deck, and they made for the coper's boat, but none of the ship's crew were in it, cut the painter, Jack, the taller man commanded, and Jack, using his knife, soon did so, then they grasped the oars and rowed away, it was the only boat that the coper possessed, and when the skipper discovered what the two fishermen had done he hurried on deck and shouted abuse at them, the men took no notice, and soon arrived safely at their own ship, before they climbed aboard, the taller man said, now let us sink the coper's boat, cut a hole in her, the other man was delighted with the idea, and without delay removed the bottom boards and let in the water, that done, he followed his mate aboard the trawler, sending the small boat adrift, the skipper of the coper head, in the meanwhile, by tacking, made an effort to keep his stolen boat in sight, but the night was dark, and the fear of a collision with a trawler made his endeavor a fruitless one, and he was compelled to lay to until daybreak would give him an opportunity of renewing his search, but, of course, one morning came he could see no signs of his boat, and after several hours search he sailed away, about six hours later he sighted another fleet, he at once made for it, but finding on approaching nearer that there was a mission ship with it, he sailed off in another direction, the skipper was now in a very bad temper, and his ill humor spread to his men, who were mostly foreigners, it was evident to Charlie and Ping Wong, although they did not understand Dutch, that the latter were relieving their feelings by making insulting remarks concerning them, while the coper's men were speaking about Charlie and Ping Wong, the Chinaman, innocent of any intention to be rude, made some gesture which one of the crew took for an insult, instantly he rushed at Ping Wong and struck him a heavy blow in the face with his fist, he was about to strike him again, but Charlie pushed him roughly aside and faced him with clenched fists, the sailor struck viciously at Charlie, who warded off two blows and then landed his opponent a heavy one full in the mouth, this he followed up with a blow between the eyes, knocking the man down, for a moment the sailor lay still, then, seeing that he was likely to get the worst of the encounter, he quickly ran to the galley, and, seizing a big shovel, prepared to continue to fight with it, but the skipper, hearing a disturbance, hurried aft to see what was taking place, he met the man with the shovel, and, hearing his threat, drew his revolver and pointed it at him, take it back, he commanded, and the man obeyed reluctantly, I don't want murder done aboard my ship, the skipper added, turning to Charlie and Ping Wong, so don't annoy my men, we have done nothing whatever to annoy them, Charlie declared, and the assault upon Ping Wong was quite unprovoked, there must have been some reason for the fellow hitting him, the skipper declared, and at once questioned his men, who, of course, made known the nature of the insult which they had received from the Chinaman, he explained the matter to Charlie and Ping Wong, and afterwards assured his men that no insult had been intended, the sailor who had assaulted Ping Wong then made an apology, and the whole incident was concluded by his shaking hands with Charlie, but in the middle of the night Charlie had an experience that was far more unpleasant than his brief fight, he was sleeping, as usual, on the cushion seat in the saloon when he woke suddenly, feeling someone tampering with the belt which he wore, and which contained the whole of his money, you scoundrel, he shouted, as he gripped the thief's hand, the next moment Charlie uttered a cry of pain, for the thief, who was under the table, drew a knife across his hand, Charlie released his hold of the thief instantly, and then jumped up in the hope of catching the man before he could escape, but the thief was too quick for him, 
The room was in darkness, and, before Charlie could make his way out of his cramped quarters at the side of the table, the thief had climbed up the ladder and closed the iron door behind him. King One was now awake, and, finding the place in semi-darkness, struck a light. Turn up the lamp, Charlie said, and, when the Chinaman had done as he desired, he told him what had happened. How much has he taken? King Wang inquired. Half a sovereign, Charlie replied. After counting his money, evidently the scoundrel had only tried one of the little pockets when I woke. It is a good thing that I distributed my money all round my belt. It island indeed, King Wang answered. Now let me bind up your hand. The cut was not very severe. The thief apparently having had no desire to inflict a deep wound. Let us go and complain to the skipper at once, King Wang suggested, and, after putting on a few clothes, they went on deck, where, somewhat to their surprise, they found the skipper at the wheel. Hello, he sung out, what's up, going to try another midnight swim? In as few words as possible Charlie told him what had happened, you've been dreaming, the skipper declared, with a laugh, I've been at the wheel for the last three quarters of an hour and you are the first person I have seen come out of the saloon, no one could come out without me seeing him, get down below again, and don't lie on your back, you are sure to dream if you do, dreams do not cut a man's fingers, Charlie observed, sharply, well, I'll make inquiries, but it is not likely that the man who did rob you if you were robbed will confess, now get below, or you'll catch cold, Charlie and Ping Wan returned to the saloon, very dissatisfied with this conversation, I believe, King Wang said, that it was the skipper himself who robbed you, so do I Charlie replied, but how can I prove it, and if I could prove it, what good would it be while we are on his ship, all we can do is to take extra precautions against being robbed, after talking for about half an hour, they fell asleep, and were not again disturbed, when they went on deck, shortly after breakfast, the skipper summoned all hands on deck, and questioned each man as to whether he had been into the saloon during the night. Each one denied having done so, and Charlie believed them. It is my opinion, the skipper said to Charlie an hour or two later, that it was that Chinaman who robbed you. If you knew King Wang as well as I do, such a foolish idea would never have entered your head. All Chinamen are very crafty. You had better let me make him sleep in the fox single quote as single quote Lee, so that it would be easier for me to be robbed. What do you mean? Do you accuse me of robbing you? I do not accuse anyone unless I can prove my charges. At any rate, I shouldn't be doing. 